Luke chapter 8, and I'm going to read verses 22 to 25. Luke 8, and we'll read uh, Luke's account of uh, Jesus calming the storm. Luke 8, verse 22. One day he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep, and a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were uh, filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? Uh, they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this, that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? Psalm 112, verse 7, it is said of a believer that uh, he is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. Suppose that on our better days, that's probably the kind of thing that may be said of us. But if you're like me, I am more apt to be rebuked, as were the disciples in Mark's version of this history. You'll recall, recall that we read earlier, Jesus says, why are you so afraid? Personally, I aspire to be like Psalm 112, but I experience more of what we read in this account of the storm. I wonder what you're afraid of. It seems to me that everybody is afraid of something. And I wonder what you're afraid of. Some people are afraid of open spaces, you know. They call that agoraphobia. And some people like myself, are afraid of small spaces. So the thought of being trapped in that elevator out there, that's the stuff of nightmares for me. Some people are afraid of other people. And um, that's why the Bible speaks of the fear of man, Proverbs 29, 25. It says that the fear of man is a snare. Some of you will remember Joe Shepherd. I, I spoke to Joe Shepherd, who was a retired Presbyterian minister. I asked him if he ever, during his ministry, struggled with the fear of man. He said, oh, no, I, said, I never struggled with the fear of man. But he says, there were several women who just terrified me. <laughs> so... so um, Yes, some people are afraid of people. Um, Some people are afraid of failing. Uh, Some are afraid of the future. Some are afraid of um, financial setbacks. Some people are afraid of, of health problems. I see people at the gym sometimes, and they're working so vigorously, and I wonder how many of them are driven by fear. They're just afraid of health problems. And some people, and I suspect most people, are afraid of death. 
It's not a wonder then that you read so often in the Bible that it says, do not fear. Well, what happened here to the disciples just terrified them. They were just terribly afraid of this storm. They were on the lake. It's called the lake here. It's the Sea of Galilee, which is also known as the Sea of Tiberias, which is also known as Lake Gennesaret. And uh, it was a, a lake, a little sea that was kind of situated in a bowl. You'll notice it says the storm came down upon them and there were mountains surrounding it. And storms, we're told, came up very rapidly. And Luke's version says it was a windstorm. Mark's version says it was a great windstorm. And the words that Mark uses are quite picturesque. And the idea is that it was a great whirlwind of winds that were coming from all directions from the four corners of the earth, as it were, and the, wor the winds were, were just swirling and coming from everywhere. So this was a terrifying experience. Matthew says it was a, a seismos. It was a quake. It was something of a sea quake. So this was a terrifying experience for them. But of course, neither, none of the Gospels, and Luke in particular, they're not about storms. Luke is not about storms. He's not about uh, the saints. Uh, he's about the Savior. This book is about the Savior. And Luke is intent that we ask, who then is this one? You see the last verse in our section. Who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? Luke wants people to ask that. And he's provided this book as the answer to that. And you'll see all kinds of answers to that question throughout the book. Even in this immediate context, we read in verse 28 that um, these demons say, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? There's an answer as to who this one is. You'll find also in chapter 9 and verse 35, God says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. You'll find in chapter 9 and verse 20 that Peter says, in response to the question, who do men say that I am? He says, you are the Christ of God. And so John, uh, rather, uh, Luke is at pains to explain to us who Jesus is. And that's what this account is all about. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we want to do when we walk away from this message and from this passage is, I hope, to do so with a grander view of the Lord Jesus Christ and hopefully incrementally having grown in the spirit of Psalm 112, verse 7, where our hearts will be firm trusting the Lord so that we're not afraid of bad news or afraid of well, the kinds of things that tend to terrify us. We want to grow tonight in the grace and the knowledge of Christ, grow in our understanding of who He is, and grow in faith in Him. So let's look closely then and carefully at what this passage tells us about the Lord Jesus. And we'll begin with this concept, this idea, this title, Christ Ordaining the Storm. And I want to say two things about this Christ ordaining the storm. We'll think first about God's sovereign plan. 
God's sovereign plan. Sometimes you hear people say, well, well, that's so random. Something has happened, some event has occurred, and they say, well, that's so random. As if to say, well, there doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason to it. It doesn't seem to be part of a plan. It's just happened. Uh, There's a sense of randomness when it comes to our troubles. Sometimes we look around at our situation and the difficulties that have arisen, and it seems as if they've just, well, they've just happened. They seem to have come by chance. This seems to be what the world would call misfortune. Uh, They have just uh, come in a random way. Now, James talks about troubles in that way as well. He says that we fall into all kinds of trials and tribulations. And he uses a word, it's the same word used in Luke chapter 10, about the man who fell among thieves. He's going on a journey, and it just so happens that these thieves meet him on the road. So he he fell among thieves. And James says, well, this is what happens in the Christian life. You fall into trials. It just kind of happens. There seems to be no rhyme or reason about it at all. But the fact of the matter is that there is rhyme and reason. There is purpose. And we sing from time to time, with God, things don't just happen. Everything by Him is planned. So that's the case. That's the truth. We know that because Ephesians 1.11 says, In Him, that is in Christ, we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things after the counsel of his will. So that's what's happening here. This isn't random. This isn't just happening. This isn't really bad luck that they happen to cross at the time when a storm hits. No, this is part of the plan and the purpose of God. With God, things don't just happen. It's all planned by him. Spurgeon says, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam, does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. That every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit, as well as the sun in the heavens. That the chaff from the hand of the winnower is steered as the stars in their courses. The creeping of an aphid over the rosebud is as much fixed as the march of the devastating pestilence. Everything, he's saying, is planned by God from the smallest to the greatest. And so this particular trouble that has come upon them is not random, it's not an accident, it's planned. And so it is for us. Every detail and every trouble is planned. The smallest incident and the greatest affliction It's all planned by God. All alike are under His control. Whether uh, the terrains that you traverse are hard and rugged, the troubles that you face from day to day are arduous, the fact of the matter is that God has brought you there and God is bringing you through it. It's not a random experience that you should go through this. Job believed great things about God. In Job 6, verse 4, you know the context, and you know just how horrific his suffering was. But he says this, Job 6, 4, 
For the arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. So he's saying that God brought the affliction, and God has brought him into this trouble. These arrows that have pierced him to his heart, they're the arrows of God. And the terrors that have gripped him, they're the terrors of God. God is not absent from this experience. God is in control of this situation. Thomas Watson says, Whoever brings the affliction, it is God who sends it. Sometimes there are those who might be the cause of a particular affliction. Watson says you need to see beyond these secondary causes. You need to see that God is in control. And remember that whoever brings the affliction, it is God who sends it. It's a great comfort to know that whatever your situation and whatever the affliction, it comes to you from the hand of a heavenly and a loving Father. So, God's sovereign plan. Christ ordains this storm. But We also have to think about God's mysterious plan. Cooper wrote, God moves in a mysterious way His wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deuteronomy 29.29 says that the secret things belong to God. The things that He's revealed, well, they belong to us, and, and we have them in the Scriptures, and we're so thankful for them. But there's much that God has not revealed. The secret things belong to God. And the rhyme and the reason for everything... Usually, that's among the secret things that belong to God. The whys and the wherefores of all your troubles and difficulties, generally speaking, they are among the secret things that God has chosen not to reveal. They're things that He has kept to Himself and hidden them in the ocean of His secret counsels. We are called to rest in Him. We are called to trust in His wise and His loving providence. We're not going to be told everything. We're not going to be, God's not going to explain everything to us. We're going to be called to trust the fact that He knows what He's doing and trust the fact that He's wise in His plans and He's gracious in His purposes. Trust Him. Psalm 37, in that Psalm uh, the psalmist is wrestling with and, and struggling with the fact that the righteous suffer and the unrighteous prosper. But he counsels those who struggle, as he does, to trust the Lord. And he says, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him, and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. You just trust the Lord. You see, even whilst that is the case, even whilst the fact is that God keeps most of his purposes and his reasons to himself and doesn't explain it all to us, 
Even though that's the case, he does give us general reasons why things might happen, why afflictions might come. For instance, why does he do it? Well, he does it to show us our sin. We see here in verse 25 that he challenges them and rebukes them. Where is your faith? Your faith seems to have disappeared. They do have faith in him, but where is your faith? And he uh, gives them a graphic lesson and an occasion where he makes clear to them that their faith is weak and it has waned. Where is your faith? So experiences like this and afflictions like this come so that God might reveal to us our sin. These uh, kinds of afflictions come to us as well for God uh, so that God might reveal His Son to us. We find here in this passage in verse 25 that they say, Who then is this that He commands every He commands even winds and water, and they obey him. And so even in this little story, you find out something about Jesus. You learn something about who he is. You discover something about what he can do. You learn about the Lord Jesus. And that's the purpose of miracles in general. And of course, the whole of Scripture reveals uh, the Lord Jesus to us. As we uh, were reminded at the very beginning of the introduction of the message this morning, You can go through all of scriptures and find the Lord Jesus there. And then the Lord Jesus, uh, then God sends these afflictions to sanctify us. We read in James 1, the testing of your faith produces perseverance. We read in Romans 5, that endurance produces character. And that's the kind of thing that you and I have experienced, I have no doubt, you won't go very long in the Christian life before you realize that affliction is going to come and by the grace of God, you grow. And you grow in the kinds of virtues that are described in Romans 5, the first few verses, and James 1, the first few verses. And you realize that Spurgeon was right when he said, the Lord's mercy often rides to the door of our hearts on the black horse of affliction. Jesus uses the whole range of our experience to to wean us from earth and to woo us to heaven. He uses these afflictions so that we would grow disenchanted with this fallen world and we would love and look for the world of love that Jonathan Edwards described in one of his excellent books. So God uses these afflictions to wean us from earth and to woo us to heaven, to sanctify us. And then he uses these things, well, to teach us to pray, to teach us to pray. At the very least, even though their faith had waned and was weak and they were challenged and rebuked, at the very least they came to him and they cried out to him, even though their faith was lacking. And this is what tends to happen with problems. It tends to drive us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Spurgeon said, anything that makes us pray is a blessing. And so you see then the sovereign plan of God and the mysterious plan of God. And the big point, the thing that should comfort us is that Christ ordains the storm. It is brought for his glory And it is brought for our growth and our good. And it's something to remember when the 
Oh, the violent squalls of trouble come your way. Remember uh, that the Lord has ordained the storm that has come your way. Now, the second point is this, Christ present in the storm. Christ present in the storm. He ordains it, and we're so thankful He's present in it. Most of you will have heard of a, of a game changer. Well, a game changer is something that, well, it changes the game. And it changes the game usually in a, hopefully, in a positive way. And everything suddenly changes, and the storm clouds are gone, and the sun has begun to shine. Well, the game changer here is the fact that the Lord Jesus is with them. The game changer for you in your life is the fact that the Lord Jesus is with you. It makes all the difference in the world. Here's a couple of verses from a John Newton hymn. He says, Begone, unbelief, my Savior is near, and for my relief will surely appear. By prayer, let me wrestle, and he will perform. With Christ in the vessel, I smile at the storm. And then he says, His love in time past forbids me to think he'll leave me at last in trouble to sink. Each sweet Ebenezer I have in review confirms his good pleasure to help me quite through. You see, no matter how fierce the storm, he says, with Christ in the vessel, I smile at the storm. And the trouble with these disciples and the trouble with, with me and with you is the fact that we tend to forget the game changer. We tend to forget that he's not, we, we think that he's not there. Uh, we, we tend to not make the calculation, A plus B equals C. We tend to, to not add things up. And we forget that Christ, uh, who ordains things, and Christ present means peace for us. And uh, the fact of the matter is that if Jesus is with us, we have no reason to fear. And so this is a game changer that Christ is present in the storm. Well, now why is it a game changer? Well, first of all, because Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the Savior. Sometimes when we suffer, we, well, we probably don't verbalize it, but we think it, and maybe we can't even bring ourselves to verbalize it to ourselves, but we feel it. Why are we suffering? And why am I in this storm anyway? And is this really what I deserve? And of course, the answer to that is, no, I don't think I deserve it at all. So why am I in this trouble? And we, we tend to respond with those kinds of questions. The most fundamental thing to say about those kinds of feeling questions that we have is that it's entirely the wrong kind of question. The right question is, why am I not in hell? That's the right question. Why is the devil not my companion? Why are the demons not, right now, my tormentor? Why am I not engulfed in the flames of hell? 
why is that not the case? Why have I not been consigned to the judgment already? And of course, the answer is because Jesus has saved us. The, the Lord Jesus is full of grace and he's, he's saved us. He saved these men. They, they did have faith, although their faith was, was weak and seemed to have no bearing on that situation in their minds. It's important to remember this when you go through times of difficulty and affliction. You need to remember that uh, you're a saved soul. And no matter how dreary your day, and no matter how dark your night, you're forgiven. And no matter what happens to you in the course of your life, and no matter the details of the upcoming week for you, you're destined for glory, and you're destined for glory because Jesus saved you, and he saved you having died for you, and so you need to rest in that. And so in the midst of your affliction, you remember that Jesus is your Savior. Someone has said, whenever anything disagreeable or displeasing happens to you, remember Christ crucified and be silent. There come points in our difficulties and afflictions when we need to put our hands over our mouths and just stop talking. If, if our words are words of complaint, if our feelings are feelings of discontent with the plan of God for us, we need to just be quiet and think about the fact that Jesus died for us. And so we will go to heaven so it makes a difference to have Jesus with us in the, in the storm because he's Jesus, the one who saves, and, and he's Jesus, the one who knows, you see. There is a, a solitary element to suffering. And you might feel, and you may well be right, you might feel that nobody understands. And frankly, very often that is the case. The wonderful thing is that the one who's with you in the storm, he knows. He knows your trouble, you see. Did Jesus know that a storm was coming? Well, of course he did. He said, let's cross over to the other side. He, he knew there was a storm. And he knew the storm was coming not because he had checked. He had, you know, looked at the radar and so on and so forth. It wasn't because of that. That's because the rain and the wind belong to him. They don't do anything without him. Jeremiah 10.13 says, When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens, and he causes the clouds to ascend from the end of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain, and he brings out the wind from his storehouses. And so the winds that were battering the boat and the waves that were lashing at the boat. They belonged to Jesus. They came there at his behest. They came there because he commanded them. They came there because he was under, uh, uh, they were under his control. They are his waves. They are his winds. The storm was his storm. And the pain that greets you at the break of a day, that's his pain. He brings that. Even as he brought this, 
So he knows all about the trouble for the simple reason that he's brought it. It's under his control. So he knows your trouble, you see. And he knows your heart. <clears throat> Excuse me. When, when from your heart you cry out to him, as they did, they were serious. Master, master. This was not uh, just a, a, a mild uh, uh, response from them. They were in dead earnest. And the Lord Jesus knows. And when you cry out to him, he understands your heart. He understands the depth of your concern. Sometimes your prayers are inarticulate groanings. Sometimes there are no words for what you want to say to God. There, well, you just don't have words to express what you want to say to the Lord. He knows that. He knows the groaning. He understands the groan. When you cry, oh, Lord, like that, you, well, he knows that. He understands. You might not be able to express it to people, but the Lord knows that. He knows what you're saying. Sometimes your prayers are confused. You know, remember Peter, so confused on the Mount of Transfiguration because he's so excited. Well, let's make tents and so on and so forth. Well, he doesn't, says he didn't know what he was talking about. Well, the Lord understood. And when they cry out to Jesus here, it's a terrible prayer. Lord, don't you care that we're drowning here? Well, the Lord understands. He knows. In fact, Richard Sibb said, God can make sense of a confused prayer. These desires cry louder in his ears than our sins. The Lord knows, you see. And he knows your pain. What I mean by that is he knows how difficult it is. You know, maybe you're too manly to express how difficult it is. Or maybe you just lack words to explain just how tough things are. But you have a sympathetic high priest who understands. And you look at him in the boat, you see that the Lord Jesus is human. And you see him in the boat, and he's lying. I think at the front and at the back of the boats there were, was, were ledges, and, and he was asleep on the stern on probably one of those and curled up with a pillow. His humanity is at the forefront of this little account because he's sleeping. Why is he sleeping? Because he's tired. He's got a pillow to make him comfortable. He's asleep in a storm. And he's asleep in a storm that some of these fellows were hardy, seasoned veterans of the sea. And they were terrified. So this, is, this was real danger. And this was a, a violent storm. And he's still sleeping. He must have been very tired. His humanity is, at least in the first part of the account, very much at the forefront. And so Hebrews tells us, look, you have a sympathetic high priest. He's been touched with the feelings of your infirmities. And um, there's a wonderful hymn that uh, 
that says uh, that the Lord Jesus, who now is in heaven, is still touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Where high the heavenly temple stands, the house of God not made with hands, a great high priest our nature wears, the patron of mankind appears. Though now ascended up on high, he bends on earth a brother's eye, partaker of the human name, he knows the frailty of our frame. Our fellow sufferer yet retains a fellow feeling of our pains and still remembers in the skies his tears and agonies and cries. So Jesus, he knows. He knows all about our difficulties. He knows all about our heart. He knows about our pain. Uh, Our Lord Jesus knows. But he's also the the Jesus who has all power. This is the, the companion in our troubles. This is the one who's with us in the boat, in the storm. He saved us and he knows all about everything and he has all power. The reason Jesus did miracles is to show us his power. It wasn't just to, wasn't to dazzle people or entertain people. It was to show that uh, while he has power to show who he really is. And uh, surrounding this account, there are all kinds of other miracles. In chapter 7, a centurion's servant has been healed. We studied that. We've seen that a widow's son was raised. We've seen a litany of miracles described in chapter 7 that describe to us how powerful the Lord Jesus is. What follows from here? Well, a demon-possessed man is going to be delivered the the terrifying story of the Gadarene demoniac. Uh, There's a sick woman who's going to be delivered, and there's a dead child who's going to be raised. And then in chapter 9, there's going to be 5,000 people saved with just a little lunch that somebody happened to have. And, And each story presents to us the fact that the Lord Jesus has infinite power. And then in this story, we're told that Jesus spoke to the winds and the waves, and he told them to stop. And in Mark, the word that's used is be still. So he addresses them, uh, personification, and, and he tells them to be quiet. The word means to be muzzled. It's like if you have a dog who's just barking and barking, and then they put a muzzle on him, can't do anything. That's what Jesus did with the wind and the waves. He said, be muzzled. Stop it. And then extraordinarily, it just stops. So you, you see the power of the Lord Jesus. Well, in a number of ways, he's speaking to the wind and the waves. And he does something that not just calms the wind and the waves, but it calms them. And so what you have here is we're drowning. And then he says, be still, and the winds and waves cease, and there was a calm, Luke says. A great calm, Mark says. And the Lord Jesus can do that for us. How you feel yourself to be drowning, and all he speaks to you through his word, and there's a great calm. Generally, he does it through his word, doesn't he? Oh, you're full of agitation and you're full of, oh, anxiety and concern. And 
and the Word of God comes to you. A verse like this, Psalm 138, verse 3, On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul you increased. And there's a great calm. A calm that you had not anticipated and a calm that you, you don't quite understand. And so the Lord Jesus, by His great power, comes to us rarely through miraculous occasions like this, but through His Word, and He does something extraordinary and shows His great power. Spurgeon says, Half our fears arise from neglect of the Bible. And so often the biblical teaching about Jesus, when it's brought to bear on us, calms our storm. Remember the hymn, How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. It soothes our sorrows, heals our wounds, and drives away our fears. Well, that's the Lord Jesus. He has all power. And then lastly, He brings us to glory. Jesus brings us to glory. He'll bring us through the storm and He'll land us safe on the other side. Uh, This is what He did for them. Verse 26 says that they sailed uh, to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. So the Lord Jesus set them off on a journey. He brought them through the storm and He landed them safe on the other shore. And He's bringing you through the storm of this life and He's going to land you safe on the heavenly shores. Romans 8, 29 and 30 says that God has a plan and His plan is to, He's chosen you out of the world He's predestined you to be adopt, uh, He's predestined you to be conformed to the image of His Son, and He will do that. He justifies you, he, He'll, he'll um, sanctify you, and He will glorify you. And so that's what's going to happen. There are storms every day, and there are stor- storms everywhere. But what's going to happen is that God is going to bring you through it all. And He's going to bring you to glory. And then your experience is going to be this. Revelation 7, 15 to 17. Therefore, they are before the throne of God. You see, they've gone through the storms. They're on the other side. They're on the shore now. They serve Him now day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You see, they've been in the storms. And sometimes the storms rage right to the very end. Some people die in very difficult circumstances. The storms are raging. And then the idea here in Revelation 7 is they've arrived in glory and in a sense their cheeks are still wet from the tears that they shed in the midst of the storms that they had to endure. It's not been easy. And they get there and their cheeks are still wet from crying. And the, the word says that God wiped away their tears. Everything's okay now. Spurgeon says, oh, what a transcendent joy will overrun the hearts of the saints when after so many conflicts and temptations and afflictions they arrive in glory 
and are harbored in heaven where they shall rest forever. Many a hard storm they ride out, and many straits and troubles they here encounter. But at last they arrive at their desired and long-expected haven, and then heaven rings and resounds with their joyful acclamations. That's the Christ who's with you, the Christ who saved you. He knows all about you. He's the one who has great strength and the one who will bring you to glory. And that's why, you know, we're okay in the storm because he's with us. William Bridge writes, It is so, and so it is that a Christian never has more experience of God's upholding and sustaining grace. His sin never more uncovered and healed. His grace is never more exercised and manifested. God is never more present with him than when he is most afflicted. And he never participates more in Christ's suffering than in and by his own sufferings. Surely, therefore, he has no reason for his discouragement, whatever his afflictions are. And so he need not be afraid of bad news because his heart is firm, trusting in this Christ who ordains the storm and this Christ who's with him in the storm. And then lastly, Christ stilling the storm. You see, verse 24 is just astounding. Master, Master, we're, we're perishing. And he awoke and he rebuked the wind and the raging waves and they ceased and there was a calm. It's not a wonder that we read that they who were moments ago afraid of the storm, now they're afraid of him. Verse 25, they were afraid and they marveled and they said, well, now who is this? Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the waves and they obey him? Who indeed? Who is, who is Jesus? Who is this man? Well, you see, if you were a New Testament era Jew, you listen to this, you hear about this. You know, they land and they tell you about this. They explain what happened and how the storm came up and how he spoke and it it was calmed. And you say to yourself, well, he sounds just like God. There's no other explanation for it. He sounds, seems to be just like God. This seems to be God here with us. Because you'd remember, if you're a New Testament Jew, you'd remember Psalm 65, verse 7, you who still the noise of the waves, the noise of the seas. That's God. Psalm 89, verse 9. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Psalm 104, verse 7. At your rebuke, the waters fled. At the voice of your thunder, they hastened away. You remember Psalm 107, verse 29. He calms the storm so that its waves are still. You remember this? And you say, oh, he sounds just like God. And the demons, well, unwillingly, they corroborate that because in verse 28, they speak to him and they say, Jesus, son of the most high God, leave us alone. Don't torment us. But they know who he is. He's Jesus, the son of the most high God. And the apostle will declare it 
later in chapter 9. Who are you? Who do they say I am? But who do you think I am? You're Christ. The Christ of God. Psalm 89 says, O Lord God Almighty, who is like you? You are mighty, O Lord, and your faithfulness surrounds you. You rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. Who is Jesus? This Jesus who stills the storm. Mark, uh, rather, Luke wants us to know. You need to know this. He's God. That's the, that's the big lesson. I thought to myself, well, well, they know this. But <laughs> this is a game changer. This is everything. He's God. This is God come in the flesh. Learn from this story then that he's God. Let me close with two lessons. The first is don't look at the waves. Don't look at the waves. I'm not saying you should be an ostrich to hide your head in the sand. By the way, ostriches don't do that. To be fair to them, they don't. I don't know where and when it started, but they don't do it. They're not stupid. Well, I guess they are a bit, but, you know, it's just not productive. So they don't do that. Um, And neither should we. We should not hide our heads in the sand. We need to be aware of what's going on. But don't be overwhelmed by it. Don't focus on the waves. Don't focus on the troubles. Don't focus on the waves like Peter did. You see, the, the fact of the matter is that when we do that, it, it's, it's not helpful. When we fix our attention on the troubles that have come our way. I mentioned to you that I don't like being in elevators because they're so desperately confining. And over the, usually what I do when I get into an elevator is I'll look quickly at the ceiling to see if there's that little escape hatch there that not all of them have, which I found deeply troubling, and and only some of them have. And then I I discovered that even those hatches, by the way, I I would check to see if, how could I actually reach that? I make these calculations very, very quickly, and who do I need to stand on top of so that I might get to that? It's not a... It's not a good feeling. Um, but then I found out that those, those emergency hatches are actually locked from the outside. And I thought, now that just doesn't make sense at all. And I found that very disturbing as well. And apparently it's so, because the hatch is there for those coming to rescue you. Well, I'd rather not wait. Thank you very much. I'd like to get out myself. But... Nobody's interested in my point of view. But all of that to say to you, don't focus on the trouble. I figure now when I get into elevators, I just think about getting off. Don't think about the trouble. Don't focus on it. Be aware and be intelligent, but it doesn't help to focus on the waves. It just leads to panic and discouragement. The second lesson is this. Don't take your eyes off the Lord Jesus. You just run quickly to him. You just fix your eyes on him. Hebrews chapter 12 says, looking unto Jesus. Remember, when we started, this is something we studied together, looking unto Jesus. Well, it's not just for when you start a church. It's for your Christian life. Looking unto Jesus. The Psalm 
56 verse 3 says, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. Colossians 3 says, fix your eyes on things above. How do you fix your eyes on Jesus? Say, when I don't look at the waves. Don't get obsessed and focused on the waves. And focus and get fixated on Jesus. How do you do that? How do you practically do that? Well, just three things, very simply. Be always in the Bible. And be always at the throne. And be always with the saints. Okay? Very simple. Challenging. A little hard. Takes dedication and discipline. But if you're going to focus on Jesus, be always in your Bible, be always at the throne, and be always with the saints. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you most of all for your Son, and pray that you'll help us, uh, those of us who are believers, to, to be men and women and young people of great faith, those who trust in the Savior and those who walk by faith in him. Use your word to strengthen us in our faith, we pray. Bless also those who are strangers to grace, and we pray that they might find that the Lord Jesus uh, wants to be their Savior as well. And we pray that even tonight, before they lay their heads on their pillows, that they will come to him for life and forgiveness, and that he might be, before this night is through, their Savior as well. Grant this for Jesus' sake. Amen.